Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 1st through 7th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, sections 125 through 128. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Well, hi, uh, hey. What is that? It looks like a tree. It does, but a special kind of tree. Interesting. You know, we've mentioned every show, Jay, that you and I are brothers. Yeah. And family is very important to us. Yeah. And it's exciting to me that this lesson is going to be all about family. Yeah, that's exciting. Maybe that tree's going to show up a little later in the lesson. Keep an eye out for it. So now, let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 22 minutes, 40 seconds. Very easy, and what would it be daily? 3 minutes, 14 seconds. Fantastic. Here we've got time codes if you want to go through these section by section. Otherwise, buckle up, we'll talk about them all together. And here we've got a chart about where and when the revelations are taking place. Let's jump right in with Doctrine and Covenants, section 125, and let's get some background information. We'll take this from the Institute Student Manual. After Governor Lilburn W. Boggs issued the executive order to remove all Mormons from the state of Missouri in October 1838, thousands of church members fled to Iowa Territory and Illinois. The Prophet Joseph Smith and other church leaders arranged to buy 700 acres of land in commerce, later named Nauvoo, Illinois, and nearly 18,000 acres in Lee County, Iowa Territory. Branches of the church were eventually established in Iowa Territory in Zarahemla and Nashville and other small settlements near the existing community of Montrose. By the way, Montrose is located just to the other side of the river from Nauvoo. Going on, during a church conference held on October 5, 1839, the Iowa stake was created. In March 1841, the prophet Joseph Smith received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 125 in which the Lord named Zarahemla and Nashville as principal gathering places for church members in Iowa territory. In August 1841, the name of the Iowa stake was changed to the Zarahemla stake. However, because all available church members were needed to help build the Nauvoo Temple and complete other construction projects in Nauvoo, Illinois, the Zarahemla stake was dissolved in January of 1842 after numerous church members moved from Iowa Territory to Nauvoo. This helps us to remember the early days of the United States. Iowa was not yet a state. It was a territory. Good point. And if you're interested in a map of this area, since we're talking about a lot of places, don't forget at the Joseph Smith Papers Project, josephsmithpapers.org, there is a link under media for maps. And you can see right here how this is all laid out. So much good information there. So let's go to the revelation. This is a really short revelation, and we're just going to summarize it a bit. It's an answer to the question posed in verse 1, what is the will of the Lord concerning the saints in the territory of Iowa? 
And the Lord responds in verse 2, Let them gather themselves together unto the places which I shall appoint unto them by my servant Joseph, and build up cities unto my name. They are to build up a city on the land opposite Nauvoo, and call it Zarahemla. That's in verse 3. And anyone who has desires to come, let them live there, and in nearby Nashville, and Nauvoo, and in all the stakes which I have appointed there in verse 4. From the Institute Manual, we get this quote from President Ezra Taft Benson. This comes from the manual Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Ezra Taft Benson. And he reminds us, quote, As the church grows, it is very important that we build solidly and well, and that our prospective stakes have the basic ingredients that are necessary for success, and that existing stakes work tirelessly for full stakehood in the sense of spiritual achievement. These stakes are to be the gathering spots for the Zion of today, and they need to be spiritual sanctuaries and to be self-sufficient in as many ways as is possible. The stakes and districts of Zion are symbolic of the holy places spoken of by the Lord, where his saints are to gather in the last days as a refuge from the storm. End quote. Do you ever think about your own stake that way? That's kind of an interesting thought, huh? Yep, very true. Well, let's go on to section 126. And for the background on here, let's take a little bit of time to get to know Brigham Young. Hmm. And for the information on this, let's summarize some of the information found in Revelations in Context. That's a great article, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing on your own. Yeah. Really good. And don't forget how easy it is to get there. If you're on your Gospel Library app or on the website, that little icon in the upper right-hand corner, click on that, it will take you right to the article. So, Brigham Young, he joined the church in 1832. His first wife, Miriam Works, died of consumption shortly after leaving Brigham a widower with two young daughters. The late Kimball, wife of Heber C. Kimball, took his daughters in while Brigham and Heber preached the gospel. Brigham marries Mary Ann Angel in 1834. Brigham later wrote that Mary Ann took charge of my children, kept my house, and labored faithfully for the interest of my family and the kingdom. Brigham had been transformed by the restored gospel, and his desire to proclaim it could not be contained. I wanted to thunder and roar out the gospel to the nations, he later recalled. It burned in my bones like fire pent up. Although this required arduous travel, often in the face of poverty, sickness, and harsh weather, Brigham went willingly. It has never entered into my heart, he later declared, from the first day I was called to preach the gospel to this day, when the Lord said, go and leave your family, to offer the least objection. Mary Ann didn't object either, even though Brigham was gone about half of their first five years together. Zion's camp for four months... He made it home just in time for the birth of their first child. And then a mission in 1835 as an apostle. He was gone five months. Most of 1836 was spent working on the Kirtland Temple. He had two missions in 1837. When Brigham returned that fall, however, he found Kirtland in turmoil, rent with dissension and conflict. His loyalty to Joseph Smith made him a target for the church's opponents. And in December, he fled for his life, forced to leave his family behind. Mary Ann and the children were terrorized by apostate mobbers who frequently came to search their property and bombarded her with threats and vile language. 
frightening her to the point of damaging her health. When Marianne finally joined Brigham in Far West, Missouri, in the spring of 1838, he was shocked at her condition. You look as if you were almost in your grave, he told her. Shortly after the young family's arrival, Joseph Smith received an unpublished revelation instructing Brigham that he was not to leave his family again until they are amply provided for. But a revelation to the Quorum of the Twelve in July of 1838, now in Doctrine and Covenants 118, indicated how short that respite would be. In nine months, the Twelve were to depart on a mission to Great Britain, taking leave from far west on April 26th, 1839. Yeah, and you remember that from three weeks ago, we talked about that story where the apostles came into far west at night in order to meet at the temple site that day? Yeah. If you don't, check out episode 41. Indeed. Now, between July of 1838 and April 26th of 1839, not quite a year, the saints were driven out of Missouri. Mary Ann recalled that by the time they reached safety on the other side of the Mississippi River in Illinois, she had kept house in 11 different places within three months. And... She was also pregnant. <laughs> Marianne seems like quite the woman. Wow. Let's find out more about what she's made of. While the saints were gathering in commerce, which would later be called Nauvoo, the youngs stayed in Montrose, Iowa, across the Mississippi, as Jay talked about earlier. On July 2nd, 1839, the Twelve met with the First Presidency at the home of Brigham Young, the presidency laid their hands upon the heads of several present, including Marianne Young, to bless them and their families before they left for other nations. The brethren were promised that they would return to the bosom of their families and that they would convert many souls as seals of their ministry. Two months later, on September 14, 1839, Brigham Young bade farewell to Marianne again and set out on his mission to England. It would be hard to imagine less favorable circumstances for his departure. We were in the depths of poverty caused by being driven from Missouri where we had left all, he recalled. His wardrobe had not much of a ministerial appearance as his cap was made out of a pair of old pantaloons and a small quilt with a comforter run through it served as his overcoat. Like many of the saints at that time, he was suffering from malaria and shaking with fever. His health was so bad that, as he recalled, I was unable to walk 20 rods without assistance. I was helped to the edge of the river Mississippi and carried across. Nevertheless, he was determined to go to England or to die trying. Wow. Brigham was not the only one suffering. Marianne had given birth only 10 days earlier. The family now consisted of seven children and they were all sick and unable to wait upon each other. Nevertheless, Marianne crossed the river from Iowa to Illinois so she could bid her husband a final farewell. As Brigham and an equally sick Heber C. Kimball pulled away from Heber's Nauvoo home, Brigham joined his friend in feebly standing up in the wagon in which they were riding to shout, Hurrah for Israel! in an attempt to cheer those they were leaving behind. Two months after Brigham left, the family was grappling with malaria, and they ran out of food. Marianne was forced out of her room in Montrose and took up residence in a horse stable. 
She made a meager living sewing and washing clothes. Eventually, Marianne was given a lot in Nauvoo, and she built a log cabin on it. Her nephew later recalled that it was simply the body of a house with blankets hung over the doors and windows to keep out the elements. She is the frontier woman's frontier woman. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Absolutely. Well, upon returning to Nauvoo on July 1st of 1841 after a 22-month absence, Brigham learned just how impoverished Marianne and the children had been. He set to work immediately to improve their situation. When not at the call of Brother Joseph in the service of the church, Brigham said, I spent my time in draining, fencing, and cultivating my lot, building a temporary shed for my cow, chinking and otherwise finishing my house. At the same time, he began work on the red brick home that still stands in Nauvoo, although he was not able to move his family into it until May of 1843. And may I just say that having been through the red brick home of Brigham Young, I couldn't be more impressed with this guy. Yeah. I don't know if all pioneers were just as skilled as he was, but my goodness, it's a great house. Well, and I'm sorry, what about his wife? Again, building a log house? Yeah. That's, I mean, granted, it was a shell of a house, but she did it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you yeah. imagine telling someone today in the United States, I'll give you a plot of land, you need to go build your house and do it by yourself. I mean, that's just insane. Another great lesson I learned from this is that there will be times when things are hard, but that isn't all the time. Right. I know it took a long time to get to May of 1843 when the house, the red brick house, was ready to go. But that was a great house. There are blessings to come. The night isn't always dark. It does turn into day. And along that line, let's take a look at the Revelation. So given all that context about Brigham and Marianne Young, section 126, verse 1. Dear and well-beloved brother Brigham Young, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Brigham, it is no more required at your hand to leave your family as in times past, for your offering is acceptable to me. I have seen your labor and toil in journeyings for my name. That had to have been a very powerful thing for Brigham and Marianne to hear. It must have been like sweet water. It must have been. From the Institute Manual, we get this quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. This comes from an Ensign article in August 1981 called The Christ-Centered Life, where he tells us, quote, Obviously, our imperfections make God's full and final approval of our lives impossible now. But the basic course of our life can be approved. If we have that basic reassurance, we can further develop faith. Once our direction is correct, we can give attention to pace. There are various and specific duties in the course of life which go with and help us to keep the commandments. These duties are usually quite measurable and are quite familiar. They include partaking of the sacrament, attending meetings in the temple, praying, fasting, studying the scriptures, rendering Christian service, attending to all family duties, being involved in missionary work and reactivation, doing genealogical work, paying our tithes and offerings, and being temporally prepared. 
when we perform these measurable duties properly, they produce a series of highly desirable results which are less measurable but very real. Indeed, when we have personal, reinforcing spiritual experiences, they will almost always occur in the course of our carrying out the duties just named. Further, carrying out these duties will entitle us to an ever-increasing companionship of the Holy Ghost, end quote. Wonderful. There you go. Wonderful example from Brigham Young and also a good charge for us. Yeah. Let's hit the last verse, verse 3. I therefore command you to send my word abroad and take especial care of your family from this time, henceforth and forever. Amen. Hmm. Now, the Institute Manual includes a letter from 1999 to the membership of the church from the First Presidency. And it says this about the importance of family. We call upon parents to devote their best efforts to the teaching and rearing of their children in gospel principles, which will keep them close to the church. The home is the basis of a righteous life, and no other instrumentality can take its place or fulfill its essential functions in carrying forward this God-given responsibility. We counsel parents and children to give highest priority to family prayer, family home evening, gospel study, and instruction, and wholesome family activities. However worthy and appropriate other demands or activities may be, they must not be permitted to displace the divinely appointed duties that only parents and families can adequately perform. Wow. There's another quote from the Come Follow Me manual from Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson. This is from the October 2017 General Conference. She says, Remember that some of the greatest needs may be those right in front of you. Begin your service in your own homes and within your own families. These are the relationships that can be eternal, even if, and maybe especially if, your family situation is less than perfect. You can find ways to serve, lift, and strengthen. Begin where you are. Love them as they are. And prepare for the family you want to have in the future. Very nice. Family, it's very important. Yeah. Well, with that, let's go on to section 127. Let's get our background from the Institute Manual. It says, The Prophet Joseph Smith's first public teaching about the doctrine of vicarious baptisms for the dead occurred as he preached a funeral sermon for Brother Seymour Brunson, who had been a member of the Nauvoo High Council and a bodyguard of the Prophet, on August 15, 1840, in Nauvoo, Illinois. And you might remember we talked about that in our last lesson as well. Yes. Soon afterward, church members began performing baptisms for the dead in the Mississippi River. Four months later, the prophet announced the doctrine in a letter to members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles serving in Great Britain. The saints have the privilege of being baptized for those of their relatives who are dead, who they feel to believe would have embraced the gospel if they had been privileged with hearing it and who have received the gospel in the spirit through the instrumentality of those who may have been commissioned to preach to them while in the prison. Before the baptistry in the Nauvoo temple was completed, the Lord permitted the saints to temporarily perform baptisms for the dead in places other than the temple, explaining, This ordinance belongeth to my house, 
and cannot be acceptable to me only in the days of your poverty, wherein ye are not able to build a house unto me. I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me, and during this time your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. And we talked about that in our last lesson too. That was section 124. By the end of November 1841, a large wooden baptismal font was prepared in the basement of the Nauvoo Temple and enclosed in a temporary clapboard building while the construction of the walls and upper floors of the temple continued. In May 1842, Lilburn W. Boggs, the former governor of Missouri who had issued the extermination order against church members, was wounded in an assassination attempt. Missouri authorities accused the Prophet Joseph Smith of helping plan the attack, and both Missouri and Illinois officials tried to arrest the Prophet, who was living in Nauvoo, Illinois at the time, and return him to Missouri for trial. Now, as a side note, although Joseph was accused of helping plan the attack, it was his old friend Orrin Porter Rockwell who got arrested for it and spent eight months in prison before being acquitted. It probably didn't help that he had a terrible defense. For example, when Porter Rockwell was asked if he shot at Boggs, he supposedly replied, per folkloric sources, that I've never shot at anybody. If I shoot, they get shot. He's still alive, isn't he? (laughs) Now, for more on this giant of church history folklore, Check out this Q&A on the Church's History site. Questions are being answered by church historians about Porter Rockwell. And it's a good thing because so much of Porter Rockwell's life comes down to us through folklore. And there's some great stories. Who knows what's true and what's not? But you'll get a great sense of that in this article. We'll link it in the description of the video below. Let's go on with the account from the Institute Manual. Speaking of Joseph Smith... Knowing that if he returned to Missouri, he would likely be killed, the prophet was in and out of hiding from early August 1842 through December of 1842 to avoid being arrested. In January of 1843, it was determined that the proceedings to arrest the prophet and return him to Missouri were illegal. On September 1st of 1842, the Prophet Joseph Smith worked in a room above the red brick store, where church business was often conducted, as well as at his home. At some time during that day, the Prophet wrote a letter containing instructions for church members, letting them know that he was planning to once again go into hiding, and instructing them regarding the ordinance of proxy baptism for the dead. Two days later, he was forced to hide once more. On September 4th, 1842, The letter was read aloud to church members who were gathered at the outdoor meeting grove near the Nauvoo Temple. The contents of that letter are recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 127. Now, this may seem strange when it mentions the outdoor meeting grove, but they've been working on the temple. They hadn't built church buildings. They would meet in homes in inclement weather, or they would meet outside. There's more information on this you might enjoy. This week in particular, go to the historical resources section in the church history section of your Gospel Library app and go down to this week's reading 
They have, as we've pointed out before, this is a collection of resources from all the different church history resources. But they've got a couple of videos in there, including one on the baptizing for the dead in the Nauvoo Temple before the Nauvoo Temple was finished. And you might enjoy the background on that. So let's take a look at this revelation. Now, what's interesting about this, you may have noticed that the verses seem unusually long. That's true of 127 and 128. And the reason being, this is not a formal revelation as we have had earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is a letter. This was a letter to the saints. Much like the epistles of Paul to the early church, this was an epistle to the church from Joseph as he is in hiding. So let's summarize a few things. Verse 1, Joseph tells the saints that he's about to go into hiding again, as we've talked about. He says, when I learn that the storm is fully blown over, then I will return to you again. Verse 2, and as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end, or bad, as you may choose to call it, judge ye for yourselves. God knoweth all these things, whether it be good or bad. Nevertheless, deep water is what I am wont to swim in. It all has become a second nature to me, and I feel like Paul to glory in tribulation, for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all, and will deliver me from henceforth. For behold and lo, I shall triumph over all my enemies, for the Lord God hath spoken it. It's a great paragraph. Yeah. Now, you may read through this, and we've talked a lot about what has happened to Joseph Smith throughout his life, and you may be asking yourself, why is he going through so much trouble and tribulation? Well, we have a quote from the Institute Manual from Elder Robert D. Hales in which he addresses that very thing. This is from April 2003 General Conference. He says, quote, There is meaning and purpose in our earthly challenges. Consider the prophet Joseph Smith. Throughout his life, he faced daunting opposition, illness, accident, poverty, misunderstanding, false accusation, and even persecution. One might be tempted to ask, why didn't the Lord protect his prophet from such obstacles, provide him with unlimited resources, and stop up the mouths of his accusers? The answer is, each of us must go through certain experiences to become more like our Savior. In the school of mortality, the tutor is often pain and tribulation, but the lessons are meant to refine and bless us and strengthen us, not to destroy us, end quote. You know, there is such an instinct, especially when we're feeling very empathetic, that we want to clear the path before us or have the path cleared before us. And yeah, okay, there are times when the path gets cleared a little, but more often than not, what makes us powerful is our ability to be strong enough to handle whatever the path is. And that strength comes through having these challenges as the Lord strengthens us to do it. Let's go on with what's happening in verse 4. Verily thus saith the Lord, Let the work of my temple and all the works which I have appointed unto you be continued on and not cease. And let your diligence and your perseverance and patience and your works be redoubled 
and you shall in no wise lose your reward, saith the Lord of hosts. So there's that emphasis again on the temple. Yep. It's time to redouble your efforts and build that temple. Yeah. So in the Institute Manual, they've got a quote from President Howard W. Hunter. This is from an article in the February 1995 enzyme called A Temple Motivated People. Now, you may know from Howard W. Hunter, that was one of his central messages. He says this, It should be no surprise to us that the Lord does desire that his people be a temple-motivated people. I repeat what I have said before. It would please the Lord for every adult member to be worthy of and to carry a current temple recommend, even if proximity to a temple does not allow immediate or frequent use of it. The things that we must do and not do to be worthy of a temple recommend are the very things that ensure we will be happy as individuals and as families. Hmm, a great promise. And let's remember some more current admonitions from President Russell M. Nelson. This comes from his October 2021 General Conference talk. Let's have him say it. Should distance, health challenges, or other constraints prohibit your temple attendance for a season, I invite you to set a regular time to rehearse in your mind the covenants you have made. If you don't yet love to attend the temple, go more often, not less. Let the Lord, through His Spirit, teach and inspire you there. I promise you that over time, the temple will become a place of safety, solace, and revelation. Absolutely, President Nelson. Yeah, anytime you have a promise from a prophet, we should pay attention. Go to the temple more often, not less. Yep. Let's go back to the Revelation, verse 5. And again, I give unto you a word in relation to the baptism for your dead. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you concerning your dead, when any of you are baptized for your dead, let there be a recorder, and let him be eyewitness of your baptisms. Let him hear with his ears that he may testify of a truth, saith the Lord, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven, whatsoever you loose on earth may be loosed in heaven. Wonderful. You know, that reference in verse 6 really connects us back to the letter to the Twelve that was quoted in the introduction, that the saints have the privilege of being baptized for those of their relatives who are dead, whom they believe would have embraced the gospel. I think that's what we're talking about in verse 6 when he uses that term, when any of you are baptized for your dead. And that's an important emphasis. Let's take a look at the Institute Manual. We have a quote from Elder Quinton L. Cook. This comes from April 2014 General Conference, where he says, quote, The Lord in initial revelatory instructions referred to baptism for your dead. Our doctrinal obligation is to our own ancestors. This is because the celestial organization of heaven is based on families. The First Presidency has encouraged members, especially youth and young single adults, to emphasize family history work and ordinances for their own family names or the names of ancestors of their ward and stake members. 
We need to be connected to both our roots and branches. The thought of being associated in the eternal realm is indeed glorious. End quote. That it is. Let's go on in verse 8. For I am about to restore many things to the earth pertaining to the priesthood, saith the Lord of hosts. Ah, that's interesting. It is. You know, we still take for granted that what we understand in the gospel today was understood back then. But remember, we are watching it evolve. And from our perspective, we should expect it to continue as the restoration continues. It's almost as if we believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Yeah, we should really turn that into some kind of a... Statement of faith, maybe? Yeah, and then write a song about it. That's a bit of a cheat on a later lesson, too, so that's a spoiler. (laughs) There's some additional information in the manual Teachings of the Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith. This is also quoted in the Institute Manual. In response to the Lord's command, the prophet and the saints moved forward as quickly as possible to begin building a house of the Lord. But the prophet realized that the construction would take years, and he knew that the saints needed the full blessings of the temple. Consequently, on May 4th of 1842, four months before this revelation in section 127, even though the temple was not complete, Joseph Smith administered the endowment to a small group of faithful brethren. Now, Joseph later taught the doctrine of eternal marriage and introduced the sealing ordinance to the saints, but we'll talk about that more in our next lesson. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the Revelation, verse 9. And again, let all the records be had in order, that they may be put in the archives of my holy temple to be held in remembrance from generation to generation, saith the Lord of hosts. The Institute Manual tells us, Initially, before receiving additional instruction and in their hurry to administer baptism for their loved ones, church members did not always accurately record their baptisms for the dead. In addition, proxies were sometimes baptized for people of the opposite gender, and the ordinance was often performed without witnesses. President Brigham Young explained, When an infinite being gives a law to his finite creatures— He has to descend to the capacity of those who receive his law. When the doctrine of baptism for the dead was first given, this church was in its infancy and was not capable of receiving all the knowledge of God in its highest degree. When the doctrine of baptism for the dead was first revealed, all the order of it was not made known. Afterwards, it was made known that records, clerks, and one or two witnesses were necessary, or else it will be of no value to the saints. The Lord has led this people all the while in this way, by giving them here a little and there a little. Thus he increases their wisdom, and he that receives a little and is thankful for that shall receive more and more. End quote. An important principle. Yeah, that's a segment from a speech recorded in Times and Seasons, July 1st, 1845. Neat stuff. Wonderful. Well, let's head into Doctrine and Covenants section 128, and let's get a little background from the Institute Student Manual. On September 3rd, 1842, the Prophet Joseph Smith was at home with his family when he learned that sheriffs from Missouri and Illinois were approaching with the intent to arrest him and return him to Missouri. The prophet was able to slip away unnoticed and eventually made his way that evening to the home of Edward Hunter. 
The following day, the prophet's letter, dated September 1st, 1842, we just talked about that, that was section 127, was read aloud to church members who had gathered in the outdoor meeting grove near the Nauvoo Temple. On September 7th, while still at Brother Hunter's home, the prophet dictated a long epistle to the saints, which he ordered to be read the next Sabbath. The contents of that letter are recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 128. Let's take a look right in verse 1. Joseph tells us, I now resume the subject of the baptism for the dead. As that subject seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest since I have been pursued by my enemies. In the next few verses, Joseph receives some additional revelation regarding the recorder of baptisms. The witnesses should see and hear so that they may make an honest report in verse 2. Recorders, or today we would call them clerks, should be called in each ward. The candidate should be well qualified for taking accurate minutes, be very particular and precise in taking the whole proceedings, giving the date and names and so forth. That's in verse 3. There's to be a general church recorder that the ward recorders would report to, and that's in verse 4. Hey, just a note again on the historical resources. We talked about that link, but for this week, there's another video in there about this topic, about the records and how they began to respond immediately to this revelation to do a better job. And the historian shows some really rare documents that are involved in those first records that were kept for baptisms for the dead. It's kind of neat. Short video, but I think you'll enjoy it. That's good stuff. Verse 5, you may think this order of things to be very particular, but let me tell you that it is only to answer the will of God by conforming to the ordinance and preparation that the Lord ordained and prepared before the foundation of the world for the salvation of the dead who should die without a knowledge of the gospel. Now, there's something that perhaps we take for granted, but what an interesting concept. Baptism for the dead was something the Lord prepared Before the foundation of the world, it was always part of the plan. Let's go on with verse 6. And further, I want you to remember that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject in relation to the dead when he declared, as you will find recorded in Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You will discover in this quotation that the books were opened and another book was opened, which was the book of life. But the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Consequently, the books spoken of must be the books which contain the record of their works and refer to the records which are kept on the earth. And the book which was the book of life is the record which is kept in heaven. The principle agreeing precisely with the doctrine which is commanded you in the revelation contained in the letter which I wrote to you previous to my leaving my place, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. So pay attention to that description that he gives 
of the two books, the books or collection of books, and then the book of life, which is the record of heaven. That'll be referenced later. Let's go on in verse 8. Now, the nature of this ordinance consists in the power of the priesthood by the revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein it is granted that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or in other words, taking a different view of the translation, whatsoever you record on earth shall be recorded in heaven, and whatsoever you do not record on earth shall not be recorded in heaven. For out of the books shall your dead be judged according to their own works, whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their own propria persona. That's Latin, which means that you've done something yourself. So it means being baptized for yourself or by the means of their own agents, meaning those who are baptized for others, according to the ordinance which God has prepared for their salvation from before the foundation of the world, according to the records which they have kept concerning their dead. It may seem to some to be a very bold doctrine that we talk of, a power which records or binds on earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, in all ages of the world, whenever the Lord has given a dispensation of the priesthood to any man by actual revelation or any set of men, this power has always been given. Hence, whatsoever those men did in authority in the name of the Lord and did it truly and faithfully and kept a proper and faithful record of the same, it became a law on earth and in heaven and could not be annulled. According to the decrees of the great Jehovah, this is a faithful saying. Who can hear it? Wow. So let's skip forward a little bit to verse 12. Here Joseph clarifies the symbolism of baptism. Verse 12, Herein is glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, the ordinance of baptism by water to be immersed therein in order to answer the likeness of the dead, that one principle might accord with the other, to be immersed in the water and come forth out of the water, is in likeness of the resurrection of the dead in coming forth out of their graves. Hence, this ordinance was instituted to form a relationship with the ordinance of baptism for the dead, being in likeness of the dead. Consequently, the baptismal font was instituted as a similitude of the grave and was commanded to be in a place underneath where the living are wont to assemble, to show forth the living and the dead, and that all things may have their likeness, and that they may accord one with another, that which is earthly conforming to that which is heavenly. As Paul hath declared, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 46, 47, and 48, Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as are the records on the earth in relation to your dead, which are truly made out, so also are the records in heaven. This, therefore, is the sealing and binding power, and in one sense of the word, 
the keys of the kingdom, which consist in the key of knowledge. Wonderful. There's a great quote that can help us to pull all those thoughts together. This is from President Joseph Fielding Smith from his book, Church History and Modern Revelation. It's quoted in the Institute Student Manual. He says, The Lord has placed the baptismal font in our temples below the foundation or the surface of the earth. This is symbolical since the dead are in their graves and we are working for the dead when we are baptized for them. Moreover, baptism is also symbolical of death and the resurrection. In fact, is virtually a resurrection from the life of sin or from spiritual death to the life of spiritual life. Therefore, when the dead have had this ordinance performed in their behalf, they are considered to have been brought back into the presence of God, just as this doctrine is applied to the living. Mm. But going back to the Revelation, verse 15, And now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation, as Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. And now, in relation to the baptism for the dead, I will give you another quotation of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And again, in connection with this quotation, I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood, the glories to be revealed in the last days, and in an especial manner, this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely the baptism for the dead. For Malachi says, last chapter, verses 5th and 6th, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know in this case that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children, upon some subject or other. And behold, what is that subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect, neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this the dispensation of the fullness of times. Oh, such wonderful doctrine and teaching. President Joseph Fielding Smith, in his book, Doctrines of Salvation, taught there must be a family organization, a family unit, 
and each generation must be linked to the chain that goes before in order to bring perfection in family organization. Thus, eventually, we will be one large family with Adam at the head, Michael the Archangel, presiding over his posterity. So, in keeping with this quote and what we've been learning, I would encourage you to be thinking between, especially now and the time that we get to the proclamation to the world on the family, to see how strongly that revelation about family continues to be enriched. We're beginning to see it with the idea of baptism for the dead. But there's a wonderful evolution that happens in our understanding of all ordinances that lead to exactly what President Joseph Fielding Smith was just talking about. Eventually, we will be one large family. And the Lord will reveal bit by bit how that's to happen. And you know, to that end, in 2005, when Family Search's Family Tree database was released, this was the first attempt for the church to present a common pedigree or pedigree of Adam. This will continue to be a work in progress, but it's a testament to President Smith's statement. Remember this, because we're going to talk about it again later in this lesson. So let's look on in these coming verses, 19 through 21. Joseph goes into what some have called a psalm of joy, rejoicing in many things that have taken place to restore the church of Christ. Some of these things we know and recognize, so listen for them as we go on. You might notice a couple of things we don't. Let's start in verse 19. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring glad tidings of good things, and that say unto Zion, Behold, thy God reigneth. Hey, that's Isaiah, isn't it? You got it. That's our boy Isaiah. That's right. Now in verse 20, and again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Cumorah, Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed. Hey, that's talking about Moroni giving Joseph the plates to translate the Book of Mormon. That's right. Again in verse 20, A voice of the Lord in the wilderness of Fayette Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses to bear record of the book. Ah, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. We've been talking about those. Yes, that's right. The voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna, detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. Right. Remember when we talked about that earlier this year when... Wait a minute. What? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> so, Michael on the... Yeah. I don't think we've talked about that. No, no, not so much. So, yeah, this is something that we don't really have any more information about. This is all we know about it. Hmm. So let's go on in verse 20. The voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness declaring themselves as possessing the keys of the kingdom and of the dispensation of the fullness of times. I know that one. That's the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, right? Yes, you got it. In verse 21, And the voice of Michael the archangel, the voice of Gabriel, and of Raphael, and of divers angels, from Michael or Adam down to the present time, all declaring their dispensation, their rights, their keys, their honors, their majesty and glory, and the power of their priesthood. Okay, so Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael? 
<laughs> Wait a minute. Who's what? So we know Michael. Yeah. Right. That's Adam. Right. And because of a revelation from Joseph Smith in the history of the church, we learn that Gabriel was known in mortality as Noah. You can learn about that also in your Bible dictionary. Right. But who's Raphael? Well, I don't know. If you haven't heard of an angel named Raphael, there's a reason for reading your Apocrypha. Oh, yeah. You remember when we talked about section 91? We talked about the Apocrypha. Well, Raphael is an angel mentioned in the book of Tobit, chapter 12. Huh. But I suspect that's all we know of Raphael. Yep. He evidently participated in the restoration of all things, but that's all we know. We don't have that information at present. So enticing hints. Right. So let's go to verse 22. Here is a great paragraph of encouragement. Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Let the earth break forth into singing. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to the King Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was that which would enable us to redeem them out of their prison. For the prisoners shall go free. Now, some of you may remember that Elder Alfred Kiungu of the 70 referenced this verse in his general conference talk in October 2021, just recently. After referencing this verse, he says, quote, Let us have the courage to do what is right, even when it is unpopular, the courage to defend our faith and to act by faith. Let us have the courage to repent daily, the courage to accept God's will and obey his commandments. Let us have the courage to live righteously and do what is expected of us in our various responsibilities and positions, end quote. Wonderful. Now, with that notion of the prisoners shall go free, there's some more information from a talk we referenced earlier from Elder Quentin L. Cook. This was from his April 2014 General Conference, and it's found referenced in the Institute Student Manual. He says this, Think of those on the other side of the veil waiting for the saving ordinances that would free them from the bondage of spirit prison. Prison is defined as a state of confinement or captivity. One faithful sister shared a special spiritual experience in the Salt Lake Temple. While in the confirmation room, after a vicarious confirmation ordinance was pronounced, she heard, and the prisoner shall go free. She felt a great sense of urgency for those who were waiting for their baptismal and confirmation work. Upon returning home, she searched the scriptures for the phrase she had heard. She found Joseph Smith's declaration in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's great. That's an amazing statement, the prisoners shall go free. And we have a part in that. Yes, we do. So let's go on in verse 24. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand, and who can abide the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like Fulmer's soap. Oh, wait, no, that's Fuller's. Fuller's soap. Yeah, see, I just made a little mistake there. It's just Fuller's soap, just Fuller's. Fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Oh, that's a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Yep. 
Let us therefore as a church and a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness and let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of our dead which shall be worthy of all acceptation. So there's that book again that we've been talking throughout this revelation about. Talking specifically about this verse, we have a quote from Elder Alan F. Packer of the 70. This is found in the Institute Manual. This is from October 2014 General Conference. Elder Packer was over family search during this time. He says, quote, This book will be prepared using the records of names and ordinances in the church's family tree database. I am checking and adding records to this database because I want the names of all those I love to be in the book. Don't you? Family history is more than genealogy, rules, names, dates, and places. It is more than a focus on the past. Family history also includes the present as we create our own history. It includes the future as we shape future history through our descendants. Like partaking of the sacrament, attending meetings, reading the scriptures, and saying personal prayers, doing family history and temple work should be a regular part of our personal worship. The response of our youth and others to prophetic invitations has been inspiring and proves this work can and should be done by all members at any age. Doing the work now is much easier and limited only by the number of members who make this a priority. The work still takes time and sacrifice, but all can do it, and with relative ease compared to just a few years ago. To assist members, the Church has gathered records and provided tools so that much of the work can be done in our own homes or in the ward buildings and the temple. Most obstacles have been removed. Whatever your past perception, it is different now. However, there is one obstacle the church cannot remove. It is an individual's hesitation to do the work. All it requires is a decision and a little effort. It does not require a large block of time. Just a little time on a consistent basis will yield the joy of the work. Make the decision to take a step to learn and ask others to help you. They will. The names you find and take to the temple will become the records for the book. End quote. Now that's a book. Yeah. Can you imagine? And that promise that others will help you? Maybe you've come across this kind of person, the person who has caught this vision. It's hard to get them to not help you. <laughs> Or maybe you are one of these people and you're used to being the person people come to. Good for you. Thank you. We need you. Have you logged into FamilySearch.org and seen your family tree? Have you seen areas that are not as complete as they could be? Do you have information to add to the book? While you may not have added all of your own family's information, have you looked at what others, maybe distant cousins, have added? Stories? Photographs? Memories? If you're new to Family Search, or maybe you want to get your family more familiar with it, here's some fun things to look up. Which of your ancestors joined the church, and when? For the country you live in, which ancestor first came to the country? 
and when. These first two ideas may take a little detective work. Hmm, maybe this person was born in Germany, but died in Pennsylvania. There's a movement there. It's kind of a fun project. Maybe go to relativefinder.org and discover the many famous people you may be related to and see how you're related to them. Find a story posted about one of your ancestors and read it together as a family. Take a line in your tree and see how far back you can go. Do you have a line that reaches all the way back to Adam? There are quite a few lines in Family Tree that do go back to Adam. Are they accurate? Eh, Most likely not, but it's still neat. I find that people living today are about 125 to 130 generations back to Adam, according to the lines in the system anyway. An activity to do with friends would be to use the Family Tree app and see if you're distantly or sometimes not so distantly related to each other. I find that when you get past the 10th cousin range, you can almost connect anyone with anyone. Now, do you need help? Yes. You've never done anything with family history before and you don't know where to start? Well, or I keep trying to start and then that's as far as I get. (laughs) There are some really helpful resources on FamilySearch.org. We'll put a getting started link in the description. You're not very tech savvy. Maybe it's hard for you to maneuver around a website. Perhaps stop by your local family history center. There are over 5,000 of them worldwide. Each has missionaries ready to help you. That is very encouraging. That's something that I need. John's much better at this stuff than I am. And sometimes you can get comfortable when somebody in your family is the family history person. But it's something we all need to get connected on. And here's one reason. There's a great saying that says, when a person dies, a library burns down. Mm. Each person is, especially someone that's so steeped in family history, is filled with knowledge. Do your part to help get that knowledge in a way that's accessible to all. Well, and take the time to at least log into Family Search and look at your tree. Elder Packer is right. Much has been done to make this so much easier than it has been in the past. True. So let's make it a point to add our family's names to the book, as Elder Packer called it. Let's take these family names to the temple and perform ordinances needed so that the prisoners shall go free. And as President Nelson so recently told us, if we don't yet love to attend the temple, go more often, not less. Indeed. What an amazing lesson. This is such an exciting time in church history. We're going to get a lot of doctrine in these next few sections. We're near the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, but there's still a lot of powerful things that we need to talk about. So keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.